And again, I, I know this is hard because I wasn't there. I, I, everything I was told was these, these are bad medicines. They're going to do harm or people who do drugs are, it's all for recreation and it's, uh, it, it, there's no good. And what I'm telling you and what the research shows is for so many people, this is, this is a healthy choice for their well-being. And it's a, um, it just, in our country today, many of those choices are illegal. So let's, if we can just separate for a moment the legality from the reason, and then how do we think about that? Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. According to the Centers for Disease Control, one in five Americans will experience a mental illness or disorder in a given year, and more than 50% will be diagnosed with a mental illness at some point in their lifetime. And of course, most of these folks show up to work most days. And just in the last month, the U.S. Surgeon General released a report detailing the connection between workplace well-being and mental health. And while many traditional therapies, including counseling and prescription medicines, help many people successfully manage or overcome mental illness, many others continue to languish, some or much of the time, with depression, anxiety, and other challenges. Once taboo, many respected medical researchers are now examining the benefits of certain psychedelics in, in controlled environments as treatments for mental illness, particularly where traditional treatments have been ineffective. A derivative of one such psychedelic, ketamine, has been approved by the FDA for treatment of depression, and other psychedelics, most notably MDMA, are also under clinical study to determine their efficacy in helping treat depression and other mental illnesses. As ketamine and perhaps other psychedelics come out of the shadows and into respected medical practice, they will inevitably make their way into workplaces. Joining me today to discuss psychedelics in society and in the workplace is Matt Zeman, author of Psychedelics for Everyone, a beginner's guide to these powerful medicines for anxiety, depression, addiction, PTSD, and expanding consciousness. Matt is the CEO and co-founder of Happy, a mental wellness company that specializes in psychedelic-assisted ketamine therapy, along with digital therapeutics that promote life-transforming outcomes. Matt received his Master of Science in Psychology and Neuroscience of Mental Health with honors from King's College London. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Matt. Mike, I'm glad to be here. How are you doing today? I'm I'm just loving it, living the dream. Yes, I thank you for that that introduction. That's exciting. It's a uh, I'm curious about this that your audience already. I mean, you're, you're they're here listening to an HR podcast, and I'm hoping that we can together figure out why are they listening about psychedelics to, to this particular show. Is it for them? Is it for employees they're already thinking about? Is it for uh, for something they want to recommend to management? I'm hoping that we can we can figure this out, ask enough questions, and and hopefully answer their questions telepathically from over here. Well, and I think anybody who regularly listens to my podcast 
probably needs some medical intervention. So <laughs> we're probably on the, on there the same go. path there. So that term psychedelics makes people nervous. It brings to mind Timothy Leary's slogan, turn in, turn on, tune in, drop out. What are psychedelics and how do they affect the human body? Let's just kind of get that out of the way first. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a ton of baggage around that name, um, and it's and it's. I think it's it's interesting to know any of us born from 1971 and beyond, we've lived our entire life in a prohibition. We've only been told psychedelics are bad. We've only been told they're going to fry our brains. No medical use. So, yeah, we carry all that into, uh, especially as we get into our 40s and 50s, into the leadership roles we've assumed here, and it, and it and it biases our decisions. It biases how we look at people who use psychedelics. It, it biases how we think about uh, voting and uh, and what the public, uh, what should happen on, on kind of the public uh, forum. Um, and it may even bias our own and things of like, are we willing to try a psychedelic? But to answer your question, at its core, it's a hallucinogen or an entheogen that creates an altered state of consciousness. So the, the, the science behind most of them is it's going to, for some period of time, it's going to turn down what's your default mode network. So it's going to kind of quiet the narrator in your head. And it's going to allow neurons to fire that don't normally fire. So we, as we get older, we all kind of think in the same way over and over and over. For, for this little period of time, we're going to think differently, literally think differently, because our neurons are going to connect differently. Uh, many psychedelics create kind of a a neurogenesis where it's creating new neurons in our brains and, and neuroplasticity, increasing the, uh, the, the increasing the strength between them. So it's doing a number of different things, um, and all of those things can can lead to a reduction in depression, alcohol, changes in things like OCD, eating disorders, substance use. I mean, a wide variety of effects can can happen from these uh, psychedelic medicines. And as someone who's at times in my life, you know, had to manage my own depression, my own anxiety, um, and who's also practiced meditation and mindfulness and, and sometimes more effectively than others, that, that, that little chattering voice in your head, uh, does contribute a lot to, uh, you know, to how you see the world in, in the moment that you're in. And so the ability, so psychedelics will help us detach from that a little bit. Is that what it is? Or it just, it just stops that for a period of time. I'm, you know, when you say, you know, I think you said something to the effect of it, it helps us, you know, quiet that, that I took, what I took away anyway, is that it helps us quiet that voice. So, so talk about what that, what that effect is like. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think, I think it's important to recognize that you're not alone, whether you're an entrepreneur or business leader, HR leader, um, it is perfectly normal to have anxiety and to have depression. We just, as a society, don't talk about it. it we look, we think that, oh, so-and-so so broke their leg. Oh, so sad this. But we can't say, oh my God, I'm feeling a lot of depression right now. I'm going through a, a period of this, or I'm having a lot of anxiety. For whatever reason, that's not as acceptable in our society as, as physical injuries are. Um, with psychedelic medicine, it does scientifically do what, what you just talked about. It, it allows you to think differently for a period of time. And it's really a catalyst then to, to change in your life because you're able to break the pattern of how you've been thinking. When you're finished with the medicine, you can remember that. And then you can say, oh, I don't need to continue these behaviors that aren't serving me well. 
or I want to, I am going to do these behaviors, which are going to serve me better. Or I don't need to look at this interaction um, this way. I can look at it that way. So it gives that spark, that catalyst, that that uh, impetus for change that you can get to through other ways. It's just sometimes harder or longer. Um, there's a expression in the industry. It's like years of therapy in in hours um, or days. Um, yeah, it's 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 a it's a it can be quite the catalyst. Yeah, and I think that's important that that whole idea of the narrative that you tell yourself about the world around you, and it's hard to break that. Uh, but that's a big part of like in James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, that's a big part of what he says about changing how you operate in the world and, and, and the habits you, you have uh, starts with telling yourself, I'm the kind of person who does this. I mean, you know, have that, having that internal, uh, changing that internal narrative with yourself. So, and here's a, here's just a slight difference. Yes. Yes. You are completely correct. I agree with what you're saying. And it's one thing to treat this as an intellectual exercise. We can all, I mean, Atomic Habits is a great book. We can read that and go, oh, intellectually, I know what I should be doing to be to optimize, to be a better person, to be more efficient, to be more effective, to be a better partner. I get it intellectually. It's different than knowing in your soul and in your heart what you're going to do differently. And that's the difference on a psychedelic medicine experience. It you there, Of course, you can remember and and process what you saw and felt, but you're feeling it in a way that is different than something you've read in a book. And I think that feeling combined with the knowing leads to the change. Um, and for some people, they just need they just need to feel it. They need to feel love. They need to feel acceptance. They need to feel power. They need to feel healed. They need to feel safety to then go move on. And for many people, they haven't felt that way in a long, long time. I mean, so much so that I would argue that many there's this notion of like you're remembering. When you take this medicine, you remember what it feels like to have these, to, to be loved, to be safe, to be powerful. And it's almost shocking. Like, wow, I did not realize I didn't feel safe or loved or powerful. Um, it's, 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 it's incredible that a, a little molecule can, can do that. Yeah, and I want to I want to get into that experience side of it, but let's go through your journey. How how did you come to found Happy, a company that deals with this this unique cutting edge area of mental health? Yeah, Mike, I, I'm an accidental psychonaut. So, like you, I've been a member of Entrepreneurs Organization for over 12 years, and I've built a number of businesses, sold some businesses, and just built uh, a ton of businesses for business sake. Um, and it was one of those things like. I think I'll be happy when I'll be happy when we have 200 employees. I'll be happy when we have 500 employees. I'll be happy when there's a building with our, our name on it. And as you, as I reached each kind of thing, it's like, all right, you just move on to the next thing. And actually in many respects, as it got bigger, it got less fun to do that. I got further and further away from, from why that business started. Um, almost four years ago, I was invited to do a guided psychedelic experience. In my case, it was, uh, psilocybin or magic mushrooms. I, I was never a drug user. It was, I, I believed in, uh, I, I was a good student and <laughs> believed in what the, the government told me. And I just, it was not my thing. Um, but some really trusted friends said, you know, we've hired this person who is really good at what they do. And this is a chance for you to learn more about yourself and to experience something that you, you just haven't. And you might want to consider doing this. 
and I do love learning. And I was like, all right, I, th- I think I will try this. And it so far exceeded my wildest imagination. In my case, both my parents, my mom died when she was 49. Um, my dad, I was a junior in college. It was, so I've, I had this, these uh, incidents when I was relatively young. And I reconnected with my mom on this guided uh, psychedelic experience in a way that was just beyond my wildest imagination. And my head, I just couldn't believe what I felt, what I saw. And I knew I needed to learn more about this. Um, I wanted to learn more about this. And I, and as fast as I could, I got enrolled in that master's program you were talking about and do, dived, dove deep into the world of psychedelic medicine. Um, and then this book is my attempt to put a number of the different things that I wish I knew into a single source um, for people to find it, read, understand the research, buy different medicines so that they can make their own decisions um, for themselves or um, for the for their companies, for their families, for yeah, for, for everyone. And so wh- what is Happy's, who's Happy's ideal customer? Yeah, so Happy is specifically using ketamine to fight the unhappiness epidemic that, uh, that we believe there's a, that this is part of the massive mental health challenges we're having. Um, and we are, we're focused on people with depression and anxiety. Um, over time, we're going to add in substance use, specifically alcohol, and then also human optimization, which is kind of the biohacking, how do I become the best I can be? But knowing that those people also have anxiety and depression, it's just kind of where are they approaching this medicine from? And for those in the audience who are who are listening, ketamine is the only legal psychedelic in all 50 states. It's been FDA approved since 1970. They started using it for mental health in 1974. And over the past uh, few years, it's really picked up momentum as more and more research is showing just how powerful this medicine can be as an alternative to the existing um, uh, pharmaceutical um, or pharmacological and talk therapies that are out there. What mental issues does does ketamine is it specifically good for? Then yeah, I mean, so we talked about depression. What about anxiety? And yeah. I think the sub, mm-hmm. you know, you've got the longest subtitle of just about any book that <laughs> that I've got, <laughs> I, but it covers all those issues, PTSD, all those. So is it is it a single use tool or 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 how broad is is the use of of ketamine clinically, legally, and clinically as as expected right now? Yeah, this is a part of psychedelic medicine that that I really found shocking because again, we grew up being told these have no zero medical use. Danger, right. stay away. And as I've looked into this, it's it's so many uses. So we talk about depression and anxiety as kind of being the big two. But trauma and PTSD, eating disorders, OCD, um substance use, all of these are being treated with ketamine. Um and, and, and a smoking cessation. There's a, there's a bunch. There's a bunch, um, and not just ketamine. These are a, a number of psychedelics are all, are being used for these uh, for these functions. Now, are some getting more traction for certain uses than others? Sure. So MDMA, as an example, the FDA gave it breakthrough therapy designation, and the research is really focused on treatment resistant post traumatic stress disorder. Does that mean that's all it's good for? No, but that's the path that's being used for medical legalization of MDMA, which should be legal here in the next two years. Um, Psilocybin, the FDA gave that um, breakthrough therapy designation. The research that's kind of pushing that through to legalization is uh, depression and anxiety with terminal ill diagnoses. Um, Again, is that all that psilocybin is good for? Absolutely not. 
but there, you've got to pick a path to get to get different things legal. But um, yeah, ketamine is, is an incredibly powerful medicine. The fact that it's legal makes it accessible to all of us for asking. And it has huge differences versus um, versus the existing options. And I just, I'm going to just jump on this for just one moment. When we talk about the existing options, what do most of us think about? We think about antidepressants. So what do we think about the antidepressants? Well, it's something you're going to have to take every day. Ketamine, you do not do every day. And you've got six weeks. I mean, after you start taking it, you've got six weeks before you really begin to, often before you begin to really feel better about the world. Six, yeah, six to 14. So it's, it's a huge spread. And if it doesn't work, you've got to try another one. And I don't, I don't believe people understand that in upwards of 40%, maybe more of people, antidepressants don't work. So if they work for you and you're listening to this, fantastic. That's great. But if they don't work for you, it's not that you have failed the medicine. It's not that you are any, there's not that there's anything wrong with you. The medicine doesn't work with 40% of the population. So I want, please hear that loud and clear. In addition, even if it does work, there's a very heavy uh, price tag with side effects that um, it can be everything from sexual dysfunction, somewhere between 50 and 73% of people who use different SSRIs have sexual dysfunction. That's a large percentage that I do not believe is being disclosed in the doctor's room. Um, we have uh, uh, cognition issues, um, gastrointestinal issues. For youth, there's actually an increased uh, possibility for suicidal ideation. So that's, that's terrifying. When we talk about the side effects for ketamine, those side effects typically take place during the ketamine treatment. So it's about an hour. So yes, you disassociate. You have no potential, potential, a small percentage have nausea, but you're not having these issues that go well beyond. Um, you're not getting addicted to a medicine. I don't know if anyone out there has ever tried to get off of an antidepressant. It's not fun um, because your body's addicted. You don't get addicted to most psychedelics. Quick disclaimer, ketamine actually does have, is the only psychedelic with any addiction potential um, so I, I want to just stress to the listeners, it, it's a medicine to treat with respect. Under a doctor's care, there and, and use that type of prescription frequency and dosage. There are no case issues of a anxiety, uh, sorry, of addiction. But people using it recreationally, it can spin out of control. Um, and then you do get into some bladder issues and some other side effects. But um, so I, I only I bring that up because people sometimes hear these podcasts. And it's like, oh my gosh, ketamine's amazing. It does all these things. And they go to a party and someone offers some ketamine. It's like, oh, I've heard it's great. Maybe I'll try it now. That's not the right way to start with ketamine. <laughs> so that's a, uh, yeah. I learned that. I learned in college, you don't take drugs from some stranger at a party. I there mean, you go. That's never a good idea. Not a good but, idea. No. So let's talk about what that, okay. So what clinicians can actually prescribe ketamine? And then what's it, what's that environment like? Am I, am I like, you know, uh, am I going to a sweat lodge in, in the middle of the <laughs> desert to take it? Or am I going to be in a clinician's office or am I going to do this at home and just over zoom? How did that, how does that work? Typically? If you want to do it in a sweat lodge, you can make that happen, but that's okay. not what you're asking. The, um, okay. what, what typically has, so first of all, anyone who can prescribe medicine in, in whatever state you're listening to this just can, can prescribe ketamine. It's, um, but what most people, there, there's multiple ways you can take it. So you can go into a clinic and have what's IV ketamine, where you, you lay down, they put an IV in your arm, and they, um, they put it on for about an hour. You can have intermuscularly, again, typically go into a clinic, they give you a shot, you lay down, and again, about an hour. S-ketamine is delivered nasally, um, and also, though, in a clinic. It's not a, it's not a, this particular nasal spray, they, they don't let you take it home at this point. 
And then you can also use a, a, a sublingual lozenge that you put underneath your tongue and let it dissolve. And then after about 12, 15 minutes, you spit it out. And again, and then that way you have your, your journey and you can do that at home. There's a number happy is a telehealth company. We, we connect, uh, uh, patients or members in our case to prescribers, and then we make sure they get their medicine and, and have all the support before and after. Here's what I'm going to encourage people to, when they're thinking about ketamine to think about, which is, which is what brought you there and where are the best outcomes? So the be research says the best outcomes are when you combine the medicine with some type of support, uh, mental health support. It doesn't have to be licensed therapy. It can be an unlicensed guide, but someone who is in the front end saying, Let's prepare for that. What is your intention? Why are you here? What do you want to think about? What do you hope this, this medicine is going to do? And then after you have your experience, it's the back end. What did you see? How did you feel? How are you going to? How does this impact your life? How is it going to change your life? What can you do to, to take this another step? Um, there are, I don't know, four hundred ketamine clinics across the country with mental health uh, um, capabilities. And they range. So it just that, that's the question. I would look at that carefully as you're making your decision of which ketamine provider you're going to use. And are there specific populations that ketamine's not advised for? Um, so I'm answer that in two ways. If you have high, so ketamine is one of the few drugs that like if you, if you are suicidal, you can take ketamine within an hour or not. So it's, it's amazing. Um, but if you're, if you have a lot of, now that seems like a really broad, no, it's, like it a, is a really like you really are confident in saying um, that it's, so. it is one of the few medicines that, that can knock you off of being suicidal that quickly. Yep. Wow. Um, very confident in that the, so if you have super high depression, strong PTSD, suicidal thoughts, ketamine may be right for you, but not telehealth ketamine. You really want to get into a provider. You want to be under supervision. You want to be in a clinic. Um, middle of the road, depression, anxiety, trauma, even PTSD. Yeah, you can use a telehealth provider if that's if that's if that's fits your budget because that's radically less expensive. Um, actually, and for your audience, when you're talking about HR professionals, this isn't covered by insurance yet. Um, S ketamine can be, but it's challenging. But all the rest of this is, is out of pocket. So if you're going into a clinic, you can expect to spend. I don't know, four hundred and fifty to uh, to seven hundred fifty dollars a treatment. So it, it could be actually up to a thousand dollars because it can be up to about six thousand dollars for six sessions. When you do telehealth, you're about twelve hundred dollars for the first six sessions, and then it drops from there. So it just depends on what you can afford, um, as well as you're as you're thinking about this. And how many? So you you mentioned up to six sessions. How many sessions are typically needed? How how far are they spaced apart? There's kind of two primary protocols. It's either for the first six sessions, it's either twice a week or once a week. So it's either twice a week for three weeks or once a week for six. Once you get through that initial um, period or the initial grouping, then the doctor typically works to find out how far apart do you need them. For some people, that's enough. They were able to work through whatever they're working through. They don't need any more ketamine. And that's why the pharmaceuticals don't love this. Um, it's a generic medicine, first of all. And yeah, you might be done. And that's lovely, but maybe you, the, the efficacy of the actual medicine wears off, uh, differently over time with different people. So you might need it once a week, once every two weeks, once a month. Um, and that really is nothing to do with how depressed you are going in. It's just really how your body and that chemical interact. Um, I know a person who was on a scale of one to 60 was like a 53 when he 
went in for his first um, ketamine treatments. And uh, here a year later, he's once every four weeks. So it's it's very manageable into people's lives. And it, it doesn't carry all those other uh, side effects that we were talking about earlier. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one half hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Recert Credits. Then select episode 70 and enter the keyword Zeman. That's Z-E-M-O-N. And if you're looking for even more recertification credit, check out the webinars page at imperativeinfo.com. I have 10 hours of recorded webinars, each approved for an hour of recertification credit by both HRCI and SHRM. Three are even approved for HRCI business credit and one qualifies for ethics credit. You can access all of these webinars for free at imperativeinfo.com. And now back to my conversation with Matt Zeman. One of the concerns for employers is is going to be, okay, so on Monday afternoon, Joe goes out and has a ketamine treatment and then shows up Tuesday morning. What risk does he pose if he operates heavy machinery or he's got to, you know, got to deal with clients and maybe I don't want him you know, impaired while he's, he's doing any of his, his tasks. What does that look like? What's the, the post treatment protocol look like? It's one of the beautiful things about ketamine. I mean, you could, you could arguably not saying to do this, but you could take it in the morning and be back at, back at work at lunch and be in completely gone with your day. What's typically recommended is that you, um, what many people do is they do in the afternoon, they take that the rest of the day off they typically don't drive and they just take it easy for that rest of the day. Um, but that next, there is no ketamine hangover. There is no um, inability to, to perform um, as typically about as fast as half an hour, hour after your treatment. So you, you, people have options and I've seen people do a variety of different things. But I think most professionals will, will if, you're, if you're asking what, what people advise, they're like, yeah, why don't you take the rest of the day off and then come back tomorrow? But no, if I, I think employers will find that, especially in this day and age where it's so hard to keep good employees. So you have an employee that's struggling with alcohol use. This is an incredibly powerful medicine for that. You have an employee who's struggling with anxiety or depression. How many days and hours of productivity are being lost because of that, what that person's going through? Um, this medicine can, can significantly change that and do it in a time frame that's so radically different than uh than what we're all used to waiting for employees to uh to go through an antidepressant cycle and i think that's why we're seeing the self-insured employers opting in to programs that offer ketamine so yeah they have to pay for it but it's less expensive than losing that employee it's less especially with the telehealth options it's um yeah it's wild and you're, you're you're able to save employees using a technology that wasn't readily available. And actually, maybe just dive, it wasn't readily available three years ago. It was really the pandemic and the change to the Ryan Hate Act that allowed this to be prescribed um, via telehealth. So this is, and it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it is a new technology for us, but it's not a new technology and it, and, and it can be used to really uh, save good employees. Another concern for employers, I think, is that, okay, we've seen what's happened with opioids, prescription opioids. Sure. And, 
and uh, the the high addiction rates mm-hmm. and uh, the you know the massive abuse uh, by some individuals uh, and the overprescription by docs, um, at least allegedly. I mean, you know, I think there's more to that story than the popular mm-hmm. culture talks about. But let's let's assume that that's going to be a concern. And this is a schedule what three drug I think ketamine, mm-hmm. and yep, so schedule three. I'm going to be concerned about as an employer, what is, you know, you said it, it's, it, you know, it's not really addictive in the way that other drugs are, but what are my risks, uh, as a, as, as a patient of actually developing a dependency on, on ketamine? So the research says that when used in a medical setting, so under a doctor's care, following their, their, um, dosage recommendations and frequency that there's been no cases or or a handful, maybe I I can't think of any with uh, addiction in a party setting where people are snorting a powder or they've, yeah, it's, it's, and they're taking six, 10 times the amount of ketamine that we're talking about here. Um, yeah, I, I think people have, I I know people have gone addicted. It's, it's definitely an addictive, um, in, in animal studies they it's shown it can be addictive but not this, not under medical care. And the opioids, um, I think what ha- I think the financial incentives were misaligned. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of incentive to get people using a lot of opioids. There isn't that finance. There's no one making money off of the medicine. There's, um, uh, or very, it, that's not, that, that's not the, the model here. It's a different, it's a different model. So, uh, and that's primarily because it's not a patented, uh, what you're saying is this is, this is a generic drug. So nobody's going to make a fortune by, by controlling the, the market on, on the on medicine itself. Product. Yeah. It's, okay. I mean, the, the, the labor is, so what are the expenses in running a ketamine clinic or, or male telehealth company? I mean, you have the, you have your marketing expenses, you have your labor, you have your prescriber, um, you have your shipping, you have your guides, but there's the medicine itself is not, is not, is not a profit center. Um, there's, and again, without insurance companies paying for it, there's no, um, secret or not secret, but checks coming in that are, uh, that are making this thing more, more financially, uh, out of line than, than, than others. So it's, uh, yeah, I don't think you're going to see the wide scale addiction challenges with this medicine as compared to others, which again, brings us back to all of the propaganda we've been told about psychedelics and just how much of it's not true. Every other psychedelic, by the way, is actually anti-addictive, um, which people just don't know. There's, there's people, your body does not want to go do mushrooms every day. It does not want to do LSD every day. It does not want to do MDMA every day. It's uh, there's no animal that when you hit the lever, if you choose between food and drug, they're going to go back to food. They're like, I don't want that lever. So it's a, it's a, these are different animals. So you mentioned financing and that's going to be, you know, probably where it really begin. I would guess where this kind of treatment really starts to gain traction is when employer financed healthcare will support it. And you mentioned, you know, self-insured employers certainly can make that choice to include it in their, in their formulary. Uh, Will health savings accounts pay for this? I mean, can you, can I, if I'm prescribed uh, ketamine, can I use my health savings account, you know, my, my set aside money tax deductibly uh, for, to, to purchase ketamine in, in the right environment, not from, you know, some, some kid at a club. 
I don't know the answer to that. I know I know you can use your health savings account for things like the medical intake and for the the talk therapy on either side. I'm not sure you can use it for the medicine yourself, but I would have to believe you could because you're still getting it from a from a licensed pharmacy and it still is a medicine. So I, I would imagine you can, but I don't know that answer for sure. But it's a great question. We are seeing companies like uh like Walnut and uh there there's a number of companies that are offering kind of the zero percent pay over time model here, which I think is going to make this much more accessible. And that's certainly, there are a number of us who are in this space whose goal is accessibility. So we love seeing them come up, but I would certainly love to see more employers make this possible for their employees to uh, to, to find this type of, of healing and support. What do you think it'll take for the the large insurers who cover most most Americans through their health plan to to get on board and and start supporting uh, and including this in their formulary? I think it's data. Um, I know there's a, there's a number of us using different tools to really track the the data um, so that we can say, look, here are the you you we all know that this is the depression screen or this is the anxiety screen or this is the substance use screen. These are reputable tools. So here we have now thousands of people, and this is where they were when they started, and this is wh- where they were when they ended, and this is how many treatments and how much doses in between. And I think the more of us that kind of pledge to get that information to the insurance companies, I, I think it's going to be quite evident that this is much less expensive than uh, than what they've been doing with talk therapy and antidepressants. And then for the uh, for the employer component, how much productivity is gained through this? And again, being able to provide that data to large employers and say, hey, look, 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 here's a sample size. And and, and actually, one more thing. I'll, I'll try. Most of us are building apps that have uh, connections to the wearables. So we're, we have a ton of data that we can provide. So as, as, as more employers want to see it and more insurance companies, I think we're going to have a, a lot of data that proves this is the economic, because my understanding is it's not about this is the right thing to do. It's the economics. It's the right thing to do. So Incentives I think we'll have the data. What they are. Yeah. yeah, we'll have the data in, in time to uh, to get there. But there's a there's some good software and and industry things happening where people are like, okay, let's let's get this data. Let's make sure it's it's buttoned up, and then let's provide it out. So, what kind of uh, physiological measurements would a, a wearable measure that would be that would be reflective of the uh, the positive impact of of a psychedelic sure so so again think about separate for the time you're actually taking the psychedelic or the psychedelic session from all the other time and think of this medicine not as a cure-all but as a catalyst so if you take this medicine and you start to um heal whatever you're healing decrease your depression decrease your anxiety and start to Find some love for yourself, for lack of a better term, um, and feel the power of yourself. Well, what is what? What could that manifest? What could that look like after then that session? Could it look like you start sleeping better? I think it can. Could it look like you start changing your health ex- uh, habits and start doing more exercise? Can it look like you start changing maybe your diet, uh, your water consumption? So I, I think we're going to see a number of really interesting um, items happen after the sessions. During the sessions, again, there's so few things that happen um, physiologically. Um, could your your blood pressure increases, but as long as you have not, as long as you don't have unmanaged uh, hypertension, you're fine. You're going to be fine. Again, I'm not a doctor, so don't don't take all this for for the point disclaimer. But but there's going to be one involved in this process if you're at least in the U.S. and you're doing things through the appropriate channels. 
There's gonna be what, yeah, a doctor involved. Absolutely, yes. Or or, or a prescriber can be a, a physician's assistant or or yeah, different different things in different states. But um, yeah. So I think those are what the wearables are going to show on the other side of this that people really did make lasting change because of these this catalyst medicine. So it's really just an increase in well being is going to, you know, very likely, especially with coaching and uh, uh, some sort of, you know, uh, therapy, you know, talk therapy to help people, you know, make the, you know, understand what the, you know, what the changes in their lives would be. And and then, like you said earlier, knowing you need to make the change and actually wanting to make the change and being willing to, you know, it goes back to the, the old David Meister line about the, the future being, you know, a, a great ideal, but the immediate pain and progress, you know, you know, doesn't, you know, what the disruption that we're going to cause right now by eating differently or working out or all that, uh, we get into our heads and we just can't get around the stories we're telling ourselves to, to actually do that work. And so if we're coming at it with a better sense of well-being, maybe we can make those changes uh, that we need to make in our lives to move forward. Yeah, we talk about how these medicines remove the shame, blame, and guilt. That that does when you're on a psychedelic medicine, shame, blame, and guilt go away, and that's a really interesting feeling. Where you can look at kind of anything in your life and be like, "Oh, oh, that's interesting. That's why I didn't understand why my parents did this, or I understand why I did this, or I understand why this person did this." And um, and you can then say, "Okay, well, moving forward." Not because I feel badly about something I did, but because I know who I am differently. I'm going to do this. Yeah, that's different than the intellectual exercise or than the, well, it's New Year's and I need to make a resolution because I'll feel badly if I don't do this. It's a very different motivation for uh, for for habit change. And I think this is all getting pretty mainstream. If it's on Good Morning HR, I mean, if the HR, the generic HR podcast uh, is is talking about it, it's got to, you know, I think, you know, you're making, uh, there's some progress out there. I think a yeah. lot of employers would also be concerned if just in break room talk, if this really makes a giant impact on somebody's wellness, they're going to want to tell people, right? So they're going to, mm-hmm. you know, and so now we've got employees talking, hey, did you know Joe was on, you know, he's using ketamine. And so I think that's, one of the reasons I really wanted to bring this to our audience was to, so they have an understanding of if it doesn't mean that Joe's, you know, going to a methadone clinic every week because he's got, you know, he's got other issues, but he's, you know, he's using this for a, a legitimate purpose and, and improving his well being, And that's probably why he's going to tell people about it. If it doesn't work, he's not going to, he's not going to go brag about it. Sure. But take that a step further. And again, I, as I love where you said, and, and I, and I do hope that Joe is using ketamine and telling his workers, but Joe could also be going into an ayahuasca ceremony in Peru. And he could also, or she could also be doing a, a underground psilocybin, uh, retreat in Denver. Um, so, as more and more people find their way to different psychedelic medicines, there will be more conversations had around the water cooler. And I think I would encourage people to think about those sessions as healthy. So someone basically said, yeah, Joe is using continuity, the example you just said, chose to spend his hard earned money to go do something for himself. That's healthy. And, um, yeah, that should be rewarded. Okay, Joe care is thinking about something, caring about himself enough to go and find his way. 
yeah, maybe just just try to that that lens and how to look at that conversation is. And again, I I know this is hard because I wasn't there. I, I everything I was told was these, these are bad medicines; they're going to do harm. Or people who do drugs are it's all for recreation and it's uh it, it, there's no good. And what I'm telling you, and what the research shows, is for so many people, this is this is a healthy choice for their well-being. And it's a, um, it just, in our country today, many of those choices are illegal. So let's, if we can just separate for a moment the legality from the reason, and then how do we think about that? And how do, if you're still listening to this podcast this far in, why are you still listening to this? You're listening to this because this is resonating with you somehow and you're having an energetic reaction saying, hmm, maybe for me, or maybe you're thinking about this for a loved one, or maybe you're thinking about this for someone you know, or you wouldn't still be listening. The, uh, yeah, I think you're right. And I think that's, that's interesting. The other big employer concern or thing that'll come up, and I can probably answer this as well as, as you, but the, is it, what about our drug testing policy? Uh, and I know ketamine on your standard 10 panel drug test is not going to show up. It's not included in there, but we do, you know, we sell drug screening at, at imperative and, and there are healthcare, uh, providers who ha- add ketamine along with other, you know, less, you know, less commonly abused drugs to their, uh, their screen. But if you're using a good drug screening company, they're going to go through the medical review officer process, which means that the potentially positive test is going to go to a doctor who's going to contact the, the donor or the employee who's given the sample and ask for the prescription. And once the, uh, uh, the donor provides that prescription, uh, that drug test will, that, that, uh, that MRO will approve it, you know, will will verify it. And then, that drug test is going to come back negative. It's not going to show that ketamine that ketamine is uh, as, as as a substance that was te- you know that was coming you know because there's an MRO, so there's no illicit use of it you know because it's got a prescription. So employers should be there. But other things like MDMA are probably going to show up on the amphetamines panel uh, when you do the drug test, and uh, and so there's those things there, and 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 we may we may see you know I've got a lot of clients around the country who are now treating. Uh, uh, you know, marijuana, much as they do alcohol and, uh, and, and are, are, you know, unless, unless you appear, you know, appear impaired and post or post accident test positive, uh, they're not really that concerned about it. So I think, uh, we're going to, our, the realities are, you know, as, as different practices become more mainstream and, uh, and especially as legislators around the, uh, the country take it seriously, we may see more and more change in, in that area as well. It's a great inter- It's a great question internally. I mean, why do you care? It, I get some of them, sure. But MDMA, okay, this person's opened up their heart. Maybe they did it recreationally. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they did it for their own medical use. Um, and maybe they did it underground because they because you can't, unless you happen to get into a clinical tr- study here in America, get to MDMA anymore. It used to be kind of the de facto um, couples therapy medicine. But okay, so someone chose to do MDMA. Should that, do you really care as an employer whether they did or not? And maybe you choose to take that off. So uh, I'm not sure what they do for psilocybin or, or ayahuasca um, or DMT, I guess, would be the active 
ingredient in the ayahuasca. Um, but again, why would it's if I don't understand how that would impact an employee's performance negatively? And I can <laughs> can we make it a reward? Oh, they're taking ayahuasca! Yay! We definitely want to hire this person. I mean, because it's I mean, someone who's doing that, someone who's going to put their self, their heart, their their mind, and their body through that kind of experience. There, this is someone who's highly motivated to do more, to be better. Isn't that the kind of employee we all want? That sounds good. And <laughs> that's all the time we have. Thanks for joining me today, Matt. Mike, thanks for having me. I appreciate you doing this and having this uh, this unorthodox conversation on your podcast. I appreciate it very much. We'll see if this gets me canceled at the coming HR conference. <laughs> I hope not. And thank you for listening. You can find previous episodes, show notes, and contact info for our guest at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and I'm Mike Coffey. As always, don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week, and until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.